Good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Mark Bates. If we have not had the opportunity to meet, I'm one of the pastors here. My privilege to bring to you God's word. About a year and a half ago, we relocated my mother here to Colorado Springs and just so that she could be near us and we could, uh, could help out. She's 92 years old and uh, she is uh, uh, just losing her memory, forgets lots of things, and uh, she can get quite confused. Sometimes it can be a little bit humorous, like she'll call me up and let me know that she's on a boat. And uh, I guess going on a cruise, she did that some when they were younger, or she'll call me from the airport in Cleveland. Uh, she's never been to Cleveland, uh, but, uh, but she'll call me from the airport in Cleveland. Um, one time I, I was over there, and she said, now, are, are you married? And I said, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm married to Tricia. She said, you two are married? Nobody told me that, you know. And uh, I thought, well, next time I get married, I'll invite her and, uh, you know, let her know about that. And, but sometimes, sometimes her confusion is heartbreaking. She, she gets scared. Um, she doesn't know where she is. She'll, um, she'll ask, you know, you know, where are my parents? And uh, she'll ask when she'll get to go home to Tennessee and she hasn't lived in Tennessee in over 70 years. And, uh, and that's hard. And uh, it's, it can be very difficult for her. So to help her cope, uh, my sister had this sign made for her. And it hangs in her apartment. And so it just tells her where she is. You're in the apartment. You're in Colorado Springs. You're okay. There's nothing you need to be doing. Because she's always worried she needs to be doing something. And you are loved. And it's a, you know, it's a helpful sign. Um, because, you know, those are things that are important. And she needs that reminder every day when she wakes up. Where are you? And you're loved. You know, it's not just the elderly who, who tend to forget. All of us struggle with this same affliction. And it's a, it's a particularly sad affliction for the people of God. We, we forget who we are. We forget where we're going. And because of that, we grow confused in the world and we grow lost and we get scared. And because we've forgotten who we are and where we're going, uh, we have actually the opposite problem my mother has. Instead of uh, wanting to go home, we, we think we are home. And we begin to look to this world to be the thing that satisfies our hearts instead of holding out for the treasures that God has for us in his kingdom. We, we get lost along our way. Well, Jesus knows the weakness of our frame. And he understands our own forgetfulness. And in his kindness and graciousness to us, not only has he given us the word of God, but he has given us his sacraments, particularly the Lord's Supper, uh, that tells us who we are and where we are going. It's a, it's a tangible sign. It's something we can see, smell, taste, touch. It, it appeals to all the senses so that we will remember who he is, what he has done for us, so that we know who we are and where we're going. So this morning we're looking at uh, this whole theme of the Lord's Supper. And one of the reasons we're looking at it today is if you get our church emails, is because our elders believe uh, that we would be better aligned with Scripture if we served wine along with grape juice with the Lord's Supper. And so they've asked me to preach on this topic today. And uh, next Sunday, 
Uh, they, they will be teaching on this in our communities. And so if you have questions, then please make sure you go next Sunday to your community and ask your elders. They will be there uh, to address those questions uh, about this, uh, about what we're doing and why we're doing. Because, you know, in a sermon, I'm only going to be touching on it. Our focus is not on uh, mainly on the elements. It's on the Savior that they represent. Uh, but we are going to touch on that. So let's begin there. Uh, the significance of bread and wine. The significance of bread and wine. Now, Jesus in this passage is celebrating the Passover dinner uh, with his disciples, with his apostles. And they're gathered there around the table. This will be the, his last supper, as we might call it. Uh, he is eating with them for the last time uh, before he will be taken, arrested, beaten, and crucified. And so as he gathers there at, at the supper, he institutes a new sacrament, a new ordinance for his people. And as he institutes this, he could have chosen any various things that would have been on the table because the, the Passover meal was, uh, was a feast. And so the table would have been laden with food, lots of different things. But Jesus chooses, he doesn't choose the lamb and, and water, he chooses bread and wine. And he could have chosen many different things. So why, uh, you know, bread and wine? Well, first of all, we know why he didn't choose the lamb, uh, because Jesus, of course, is doing away with sacrifices. The lamb was a sacrificial lamb, and Jesus is the final sacrifice, the final Passover lamb. And so, of course, there would, would be no lamb in the celebration of the Lord's Supper because uh, there no longer is a need for sacrifice. He is the final sacrifice. But instead, he chooses bread. And, and bread, of course, is a staple of life. In biblical imagery, uh, it symbolizes that without which you cannot live. Remember, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me, anyone who eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. If you're going to live, you, you, you need to partake of me. Uh, so, so Jesus, when we eat the bread, and here's a great thing to remember when you come to the Lord's Supper. When you're eating that bread, it's just common, ordinary bread. And you eat that bread, but it's that sustenance that we get. And we're saying, Jesus, you are the bread of life. I cannot live without you. Without you, I die. I need you more than I need anything else. And so the bread has that significance, that Jesus is the bread of life. Now, wine, on the other hand, is not a staple. Uh, you can live without wine, uh, and, and many of us do, right? Uh, but you cannot live without bread, but you can live without wine. Uh, you do, don't drink wine merely for sustenance or for refreshment. Uh, wine, it, throughout Scripture, is seen as a celebration. It's not a staple of life. Wine is a symbol of prosperity, celebration, joy, and blessing. And so you may wonder, why do churches then use grape juice when for 2,000 years nearly, the church has always used wine? Well, it all started, uh, not surprisingly, that the use of grape juice is an American invention that only was invented 150 years ago. We know this, but because before 150 years ago, there was no such thing as grape juice. You could not make grape juice. Uh, grapes, as soon as they are broken, they begin fermentation. As soon as the skin is broken, they begin fermentation. So uh, if you, those who studied winemaking will tell you that the, the initial fermentation process happens with grapes, and that initial fermentation process uh, will happen within three to seven days, and that's when it gets at 70% of its alcohol content. In other words, as soon as you squeeze the grapes, 
leave it sitting out, unless it's in your refrigerator, which of course they did not have back then, you have wine within a week. Uh, that's what happens. Now, the use of grape juice in communion is a modern, uh, modern American deviation from the historic practice of the church, and it began during the temperance movement here in the United States. And as part of that movement, the Methodist church said that it would only use unfermented wine in communion. And they, but the problem was they couldn't figure out a good way to do this. And one of the ways they did it is they took grapes and they'd soak them in water, and you can imagine what that tasted like. And um, and then what the other thing they did is they just wouldn't serve communion uh, large portions of the year. Uh, and they just deny the people the sacraments. Well, um, and so along comes this dentist who is a communion steward in his Methodist church. And he became interested in the work of Louis Pasteur. And remember Pasteur, the inventor of pasteurization, uh, which how we keep our milk fresh today. And so he took Pasteur's, uh, Pasteur's uh, methods of pasteurization and applied it to grape juice. By the way, that communion steward's name was Thomas Welch. And here was where grape juice was born. Uh, Welch's grape juice was invented so that the Methodists could take communion. Uh, that's, that's where it came about. And, uh, and he developed unfermented grape juice. Now, I have no doubt uh, that Mr. Welch's heart was in the right place. But there are a number of problems with uh, what they were trying to do here. Uh, first, it's born from a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches about alcohol. Uh, the Bible is very clear on two points. Drunkenness is sinful. Consuming alcohol is not. Drunkenness is sinful. Now, now we know this both from Scripture and from personal experience, that drunkenness is sinful and destructive. Uh, many of us have seen that firsthand. We've seen it in our families. We've seen it in our friends. We've seen it in other people in our community. And so we know it can destroy lives and destroy families. However, just because the misuse of something is sinful, that does not mean that the use of it is sinful. And so, for example, uh, I've made a personal choice for my own reasons, uh, that I will not, uh, that I don't consume alcohol except in sacramental purposes. And, uh, and that's a, a, a choice of my conscience. But it would be wrong of me to impose my preferences on you. Jesus Christ alone is Lord of the conscience, right? Human beings are not Lord of your conscience. And so I cannot tell you, other than what Scripture says, Scripture, I can tell you what it says, and then that is binding on your conscience. But my personal preferences cannot be binding on your conscience. By the way, that goes the other way around too. Your, your personal preferences aren't binding on my conscience either, right? The Word of God alone is Lord of the conscience. And so whenever we elevate man-made laws to the level of God's laws, we create confusion and we create great problems. And the consequences are always serious. So, so the Bible forbids drunkenness, but it doesn't forbid drinking uh, of alcohol. And we see this clearly uh, as the Bible warns against the dangers. There are numerous positive references to wine in Scripture. In Deuteronomy uh, 14, 25 to 26... God tells the Israelites uh, that they're to tithe, they're to celebrate their tithe, and they're to bring the tithe to the tabernacle or to the temple. Uh, but if they cannot make it to the tabernacle, the temple, here's what Deuteronomy 14, 25, and 26 says, that they can buy whatever they desire, and it says, quote, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord uh, your God and rejoice you and your household. 
So notice there, both the, uh, you could use both wine and strong drink and drink it there before the Lord. God prescribed that for the nation of Israel. Of course, um, the nation, uh, uh, not only did the nation of Israel do this, but Jesus himself uh, turned water to wine in his first miracle. You remember what the maitre d' said. Here's what the maitre d' said in John 2. He says, you know, this wine was good. He says, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, by the way, that word drunk freely uh, is only used of alcoholic beverages. It is never used of water or milk or anything else. And so, so when people have drunk freely, then he brings out the cheap stuff, you know, because nobody's going to notice the difference. But he says, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so, uh, again, this sentence makes absolutely no sense if we're talking about grape juice. Uh, it, it just it doesn't fit. Uh, when Jesus brings wine to the party, he brings uh, the good stuff. Now, some have, uh, have observed that in ancient Israel, they often would mix water with their wine, but that didn't happen until after, uh, the, until right before the New Testament period. Prior to that, that was a Greek uh, custom, and the Greeks did that because the wine back then was much, much stronger and was gritty, and they would water it down to make it drinkable. And so in the Passover, they would water it down. Not today, they don't in the Passover, but in Jesus' day, they would often water it down uh, because they're, in the Passover, they're drinking four different cups. And the first three cups would be watered down. The fourth cup would not be uh, watered down. Uh, but here we see that Jesus uh, clearly is turning water into to wine. But the most important reason for changing, uh, you know, the, you know, so the church changed. The church deviated from its, its historic practice because of a misunderstanding of Scripture. And it's actually the use, of, of, again, of grape juice is, is really a relatively modern invention, a modern American invention uh, that has come about of late, uh, opposed to the historic practice of the church. But the most important reason is the sim symbolism of wine and bread in the Lord's Supper. And here's where we get to the meaning. The Lord's Supper, as we see, helps us remember who we are. Remember who we are. Looking back at Luke's account, as we look back at Luke's account, we see that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover. And he takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And he says, this is my body given for you. And they take the bread and they eat it. And then he takes the cup and he takes the cup and after pouring the cup, he gives them the cup and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, as this is strange language, and you can see why in the uh, ancient Roman Empire, Christians were looked at with such suspicion because they're talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. And I imagine if you knew nothing about the Christian tradition, but you were to walk into some religious, uh, other religious group and they said, what are you doing today? Well, today we're going to eat the body of our Savior and drink his blood. You go, where's the door? right? You can see how this would be a bit freakish. And think, now why did they do this? Why did Jesus institute where we eat the blood, uh, eat the body and drink the blood? Because Jesus, as he's doing this, what he's saying is, what I'm about to do with my body, what I'm about to do with my body is I'm going to give my body for you. I'm about to shed the blood for you. Even as this wine is being poured out, my blood is going to be poured out for you. And so the next day, the hands that handed them the bread 
were nailed to the cross. The, the blood that flowed from the, the spear of the, of the Roman soldier was shed out for them. He gave them the bread and the wine on that night. And the next day, he gives them his real body and his real blood. And as we receive the bread and the wine in communion, we remember that Jesus' body and blood were given for us. But we don't just look at them. They're not just symbols. We, we actually ingest them. And this is significant because when you, you, you don't just look at the bread and the wine, you, you eat the bread, you drink the wine, you ingest it. And then when you do that, the bread and the wine become part of your body. And there's a sense in which the scripture says you're actually sharing in the bread, you're sharing in the wine, and, and, and you're, you're, you're united to these things. And so by sharing in these things, and we be, the, the body becomes part of us, the bread becomes part of us, the cup becomes part of us, and we're, we're sharing in the body and blood of Christ. Now, this is a profound mystery. The bread remains bread. The wine remains wine. They do not magically transform into any other elements. Yet at the same time, because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, unites us to Christ. And because we're united to Christ, we're united to his body. We share in what his body did. And so uh, one of the questions I was uh, asked one time by someone is, how can it be that, that Jesus died in your place? Uh, now think about this. If, if, if I committed murder... And, uh, and I was put on trial and was found guilty of that murder. And all of a sudden, you were to stand up and say, judge, let me be executed for Mark Bates. You know, let me die in his place. What would the judge say? No. No, that's not just. You know, no, the person who commits the crime has to pay the penalty. Their body is the one who has to die, not your body. Well, it's the same way here. And so what happens is, through the mystery of the Holy Spirit, we actually are united to the body of Christ. You are, Paul, the phrase that Paul uses over and over and over again in his writings is you are in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in him, you're in Jesus. And he's saying you're united to him. And because of the Holy Spirit, we become one with Christ so that his body truly is your body. And so when Jesus died on the cross, Paul can say, you died with him. And he can say things such as, I have been crucified with Christ. How? Because the Holy Spirit has united him to the body of Christ. He can say in Romans 6, 8, and Colossians 3, 3, and 2 Timothy 2, 11, you have died with Christ. And since you share in Christ, then whatever Jesus did in his body is now true of you because that is your body. You know, the only way to remove guilt and shame is by paying the penalty and in Christ, because we're united to him, we have borne the penalty for our guilt and shame because Christ's body died for it, and that is our body. The blood of Jesus has washed away the stain of our sin. Now, the reason why we need this sacrament to remember this is because we forget. Many, many Christians, maybe I can even say all, at times live under the spirit of condemnation you have sinned against the holy God, and that is true. And the way our world wants you to deal with that guilt of your sin is to say, it's not so bad, it's not sinful, it's not wrong, but your own conscience knows that you're guilty. 
And, and you know that you should be punished for this. And so what happens is you begin to feel under this guilt of your sin. But when you take communion and you realize that by faith you're united to Jesus and he died for your sin, then that means the penalty has been paid in full and you are no longer under that condemnation. And when you begin to realize you're no longer under that condemnation of sin, it also frees you from the power of sin. The reason we continue on in sin is because we don't fully understand who we are in Christ. You have died to sin. You have died to sin. Therefore, you're to live to righteousness. William Romaine, an early leader of a, a revival, in 18th century revival in England, said this. He said, no sin can be crucified in heart in either heart or life, unless it first be pardoned in conscience. It cannot be mortified in its guilt, then it, it cannot be uh, subdued in its power. In other words, unless you understand that you're no longer under condemnation, you're not gonna live a godly life. You're gonna continue to live a life of sin because you're gonna be under that guilt. Once you understand, you're free from its condemnation. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we hear the word of God telling us, Jesus' body has been given for you, and you eat of that bread, and you drink of that cup, and you say, I share in that death. I died with him, and therefore I live with him. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And communion brings us to that truth. And so uh, John Calvin uh, reminds us then this is why wine is remarkably suited to communicate all this to us. Calvin noted that in Israel's history, wine was considered to have this bitter taste as a reminder of their slavery in Egypt. And, and, and it does the same thing for us as Christians. Wine has that bitterness uh, uh, of sin that we can taste. That is the pain of Jesus' death. At the same time, Calvin notes that wine also was used in all the great feasts and celebrations of Israel. So, for example, Psalm 104 said that God gives us wine to gladden the heart of man. And, uh, and so Calvin observes that this dual significance of both the bitterness and the sweetness reminds us of the cross, the bitterness of the cross, and the sweetness of our salvation. And we, we sang about that earlier. It's beautiful and it's ugly, it's, it's gruesome and it's glorious. And the taste of wine, the bitterness and sweetness bring that to light. R.C. Sproul, in his book on communion, says this, he says, I agree with Calvin. Real wine communicates to our taste buds both elements, pain and joy, sorrow and gladness. Sproul goes on to say, I think we lose something there because in the worship of Israel, it says, if we use grape juice, he says, I think we lose something if we use grape juice. Because there's something in the worship of Israel where God associates certain truths with certain tastes. I think one of the reasons we get off course in our Christian life is we forget who we are. And the Lord's table reminds us of who we are. Christian, you've been condemned in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. The bitterness of his condemnation is mixed with the sweetness of your salvation. Well, remember who you are. Secondly, we need to remember where you are going. Remember where you are going. You know, at the, I mentioned at the Passover meal, they would drink four cups of wine. There would also be a fifth cup that was present that they would not drink. This, by the way, is not in Scripture. This is just Jewish tradition. This is not uh, inerrant, inspired. But we do see this from Jewish custom. And the fifth cup would be on the table, and it would not be consumed, and it would be there 
for the prophet Elijah. And what it was was a symbol of their looking for the day when the prophet would return. Now, you remember, as we looked at, uh, at Old Testament prophecies, that the prophet ultimately is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so they had this fifth cup to remind them that one day the Messiah is going to return and make things right. It was this anticipation. And we see this in Jesus' own institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, it, it's, it, it has this forward-looking aspect as well. It doesn't just look back at our redemption. It looks forward at our complete salvation. Because uh, notice what Jesus says. He says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in our Father's kingdom. And so there's this sense when we come to the table, we have this bread and this wine. It reminds us that one day we're going to the feast that is in heaven. That one day God is going to have that banquet for us. Right now you get, you get a little cracker and you get a little, little bitty sip. And it's there to, to remind you that one day it's going to be a great feast. Uh, it, it's, it's reflecting back to Isaiah 25. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Isaiah 25, uh, verses 6 through 8 say this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And you just feel the anticipation of this, don't you? I mean, that, that day when, when God finally is going to make the world right and, and we're going to feast again. This theme of feasting is throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible. And we're going to feast and we're going to dine. And, 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 but here you notice that the wine is a very important aspect of the symbolism. You, you cannot replace it without, uh, with grape juice without radically changing its meaning. I'm going to give you some examples, and I'm not trying to be snarky, uh, but I do think it's important that we take the word of God seriously. Like, for example, re let's replace uh, wine with grape juice in Ecclesiastes. Bread is made for laster, and grape juice gladdens the heart. That just doesn't work, right? Or, or this from Song of Solomon. Your love is better than grape juice. It. <laughs> You know, it, it just doesn't have the same ring to it. Uh, or the passage we just read from Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of grape juice, a rich food full of marrow and of grape juice well refined. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you see, when you change the symbol, you change the meaning. And, and, and Jesus was intentional in his institution of the symbols. And, and so, uh, and so again, not, not trying to be snarky, but, but it, it does seem to be rather significant. Now, does that mean using grape juice in the Lord's Supper is wrong? Uh, there, there's some who would argue that. that that's not my point. Uh, but I would say from looking at Scripture that something is lost when we uh, randomly, uh, 150 years ago, tinkered with the elements that the Lord prescribed. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we're going to a feast. And unlike any other feast, it is one with rich food and a great feast of wine. And this is critical because we forget where we're going. And when we forget where we're going, we're not going to live faithfully where we are.
I mean, think, for example, if you were to get an invitation to a banquet at the Broadmoor, and it's going to be a five-star meal. And, and, and so you get that invitation, and you think about that, and, and, and uh, I mean, just think about how much you'd be looking forward to that day. But the, but the, the banquet is, is a long way off, and so you put it, the invitation on your refrigerator, and then over time, it somehow falls off the refrigerator. So you take that invitation, you put it in the pile with the other things that you're supposed to do something with later on, and you have it there in the pile. And so days go by, and, and you've been looking forward to this, but you kind of forget about it after a while because it's, it's a long way in advance. And then the day of the banquet comes, but you don't remember. And you're sitting at home, and all of a sudden it gets to be dinner time. You get kind of hungry, and you haven't been to the store in a while, so you get the bread out and find some peanut butter and put it on the stale white bread and jelly and load up on the Lay's potato chips and you get full and you get stuffed and about 6.30, your friend calls, he goes, aren't you coming? And you're going, oh my goodness, I forgot. I forgot about the banquet. And, 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 and now you've loaded up on Lay's potato chips, you know? You have, you have no appetite because you've been loading up on junk. Christian, that's how we're living in this world. We're, we're, we're looking at this world to satisfy us and we're hungry and we have these appetites and they're real and this world says, I've got some great stuff for you and it's just junk food. And we're, we're, we're tempted towards sin, we're tempted towards living for the world because we don't remember where we're going. Christian, Jesus has prepared a banquet for you and it's gonna be a great feast and we hold off and we deny the things of this world and, and say no to the temptations of this world, not because we're settling for less, but because who wants to eat Lay's potato chips when you can feast at the Broadmoor? Who wants that? And so when we come to the Lord's table, we come and we eat the bread. And we eat the bread and it's just plain bread and it reminds us we need this for life. But when we drink the wine... It reminds us that there's a celebration that is to come. And we're going to hold out for that day and celebrate with our Savior. So don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you're going. And thankfully, the Lord knows we're forgetful. He's given us his word and his sacrament so that we might live faithfully for him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and for your sacraments. We thank you for the way they nourish us. Often, as we say, the, the, the sacrament itself physically gives us very, very little. It's just a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine or juice. But it does uh, feed us spiritually in such a rich way as we remember that Jesus was condemned and therefore we will not be. As we remember uh, the destination that we are going to a feast that you've laid out before us so that we will not settle for the junk food of this world. Oh, Lord, may we be faithful. May, we, may you cure us of our gospel amnesia that we might live faithfully to you in this world for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.